I'd like to read a chapter from the book of Daniel. Uh, Daniel chapter 3. It's a a long reading, uh, but we need the full narrative uh, because it sets everything in context. It'll be an event, a history that's very familiar to you, I'm sure. Daniel chapter 3. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide. And that's about 90 feet by 9 feet. And he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, Nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the nations and peoples of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, May the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Mesach, and Abednego who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? No. When you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, We do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us. And he will deliver us 
from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, and his attitude towards them changed. He ordered the furnace to be heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leapt to his feet in amazement and asked his advisers, Were there not three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, Certainly, Your Majesty. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. And so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisers crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed them, nor was a hair of their heads singed. Their bodies were not scorched, sorry, their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him, and defied the king's command, and were willing to give up their lives, rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces, and the houses turned into piles of rubble, for no other god can save in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Well, may the Lord bless us as we we'll be looking uh, at this profound uh, and challenging and exciting, thrilling and fascinating account uh, from God's word. If you're familiar with the book of Daniel, uh, then one question uh, that is asked regularly is, well, who exactly is Nebuchadnezzar? And will the Re real Nebuchadnezzar please stand up? Whose side is he on? Uh, is he on the side of the God of Israel? Uh, or does he want to be worshipped himself? Does he want the Babylonian gods to be worshipped? Who is the real Nebuchadnezzar? Uh, is he a faithful believer? Are the declarations of repentance genuine? Is God truly at work in his life? Uh, we see at the end of chapter 2 that he seems to have come to faith. Uh, you know that Daniel interprets his dream. Uh, and so he is so impressed by this 
Nebuchadnezzar promotes him uh, and says, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. And you come to chapter 2 of Daniel and you think, Right, I know where Nebuchadnezzar is now. Uh, he has made this public confession and declaration that the God of Israel is the true and living God. We see it there uh, in verses 46 and 47. And so you think, well, there we are. As we go into chapter 3, we're going to see now this new believer and the effect that faith in the true and living God will have on Babylon. And then you come into chapter 3. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide. And a couple of things there just to note right at the very beginning. First of all, the irony. <laughs> 90 foot high and 9 foot wide, the gods of this world are inherently unstable. <laughs> very, very high and very impressive, and yet not built on a strong foundation. Remember that, that the gods of this world might be impressive, but ultimately they'll all be blown over. And also the importance of a changed life, fruit by their fruit. They shall be known that saying the right words is not actually enough. So we would, might have been impressed by verses 46 and 47. But you realize actually his heart hasn't been changed. He still wants to worship himself. He still wants to worship these Babylonian gods. And so there's a challenge right at the very beginning. So he erects this huge... High statue there in the middle of this glorious and powerful empire. And what will happen? Well, it's a statement of intent. It's a statement of uh, who is important. He still wants to be praised. He still wants to be worshipped. Now, there is uncertainty about what this image represents. Does it represent Nebuchadnezzar himself? Or does it represent... The Babylonian gods, there is some uncertainty about that. It clearly doesn't represent the God of Israel. And he tells them to bow down before it. Every citizen. And there is something quite comic, actually, when you read it. And the list of all the people who come, the various officials, the treasurers, the judges, the advisors, the prefects, they all come there together. All of the citizens... All of the nations gathered there in Babylon must bow down and worship. So the first point just to notice today is the situation in Babylon. So we see that from the end of chapter 2 into the beginning of chapter 3, everything has changed. Uh, so from a situation where Daniel is promoted and the God of Israel is acknowledged as a true and living God, Suddenly we see this image being built and the pomp and the ceremony. So I've mentioned all of those officials who are there, but also the instruments. The implication is that the officials are there, the celebrities are there, the entertainers of their day. Everyone of note is there and they are all surrounding this image. The pomp of the ceremony can't be avoided. 
And then you consider the law of the land, verses 5 and 6. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. This is absolute totalitarianism. So it's not even, well, you're not allowed to worship other gods, but you must actively worship this particular image. As we know of countries where it is illegal to, to follow Christianity, for example, or another religion apart from the official religion, but here it goes beyond that. You must actively, in front of everyone, show that you will bow down and worship this image. And there is no escape. Every nationality, every language, every people group, all citizens of all classes must bow down. And then there are spies in the land. Verses 8 to 12 speaks about these astrologers. The spies in other versions. It seems that there are people and their role really is to look out uh, and to observe. Who are the ones who are not bowing down to this image? Keep your eye to the ground and keep your ear to the ground. Who is there? And they are looking. They are surveying. It's the secret police working on behalf of the government. And so do you see just how oppressive this situation is? And hardest of all, perhaps, in verse 5, we're told of the horn and the pipe. Now, according to many commentators, these would have been Jewish instruments. So consider the implications of that. It shows that actually the majority of the Jewish people have succumbed that amongst those who are surrounding the image are the brothers, the Jewish brothers and sisters of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. It is one thing, isn't it, to have to battle against those you know who are hostile, but to go against those you would expect to be on your side, to have to engage in, in, in a discussion with them, to go against what they are doing, so you're actually being distinct from your own people. So this is such a difficult situation that they're in. There are exiles in a foreign land with a foreign God. And the choice they have to make, quite simply, on the one hand, to maintain their role within the government of Nebuchadnezzar, power, authority, and presumably a degree of riches, safety. That's the one choice really, to continue as they are and just bow down to this image of gold. Or loneliness, a loss of job, physical persecution, death perhaps. This is the choice. What do they do? And there are other factors as well. I'm sure they could have logically said something along these lines. Well, we have roles within Nebuchadnezzar's government. We are important officials. No one will notice all of the crowd here. No one will notice 
if we just bow down. It'll be it's a quick thing that we'll do. In our minds, we'll pretend that we're actually praying to our true God, and no one will notice. And we can then keep our jobs, and we can continue to have an influence on Ebenezer, just continue to be there in the government. And I'm sure if we do that, then it'll be okay. So there would have been temptations on every level to bow down to this image, to protect their safety, to protect uh, their wealth, perhaps, for comfort, for ease, to avoid confrontation with their own people, to continue in a position of influence within the government of Nebuchadnezzar. What would they do? Well, what would we do in this sort of situation? It's good sometimes is to imagine yourself in such a context. Now, it's not difficult to do that. There are people in our church, and they've moved to Pontedawe, believe it or not, from northern Nigeria, where Boko Haram is currently kidnapping young girls, where houses have to be placed in compounds, for the protection of Christians, because there are those who would uh, throw um, fire and so on, and uh, grenades at their homes. And they know of pastors who've been imprisoned. They know of brothers and sisters who've been kidnapped. This is the reality of their situation. And they come to Pontedawe, and it's a different world, isn't it? You know, we're aware of the suffering in Northern Korea. In North Korea, where you hear terrible atrocities of Christians being placed in front of steamrollers. That's the situation for many of our brothers and sisters. I mentioned Brother Andrew this morning. The work of Open Doors, Barnabas Fund. You're aware of what's happening and it's good to be praying for these situations. But actually, when we think of our situation... There are temptations and there are challenges all around us. Now, the last time I stopped in Gosainen, I did notice a 90-foot image uh, that we were all, to, all told to go and to worship. And yet our culture has all sorts of gods and idols. And the temptation to follow them can be overwhelming. John Calvin said that our hearts are factories of idols and that we continually create idols. What are the idols around us? There's a man in our church, and he stopped coming because quite literally, running, jogging, had become his life. He would run every night, started competing on Sundays. It affected his diet, it affected his relationship with his wife. It had become his idol. He was living for fitness. He was living for running. People live for sport, don't they? They say that sport uh, is a religion for so many people. When you consider their diary, the first thing they put in their diary, okay, when will the swans be playing? Uh, when will the ospreys be playing? When are the Six Nations? Uh, and it controls their whole diaries and their finances. And they go away on trips and becomes their God and their idol. Shopping, retail therapy. You hear of people who build up all sorts of debts 
because they are controlled by this urge. It gives them some sense of joy. It gives them release. It gives them a sense of comfort. Somehow they feel joy. If I can go to a shop and buy something, there's this release. And it can control and take people captive. And so these are man-made images in a way. Not religious orders. They're not faith systems. But they are things that can capture our hearts. They take the place of God in our lives to such an extent that God becomes neglected. His people become neglected. He is squeezed out of our lives. There is no room for God. There is no place for God in our hearts, our minds, our times. Because sport, success in the workplace, progressing along the career path, children and grandchildren, all of these things can capture our hearts. And we cannot imagine life without them. They are central to our identity, central to our existence. Others might start to worship the human mind, start to worship science. We don't need God anymore because science can answer all of our questions. We don't need to refer to some sort of holy book and to a God who's there because we have all the answers. Humanity, the human mind, look to man. And so you see the increase in humanism. And there is now a humanistic society in Pondedawe that meet every Wednesday. Uh, and you hear chat to funeral directors, more and more humanist funerals. We do need God. And the pressure on us then. Did you hear the narrative around the census? The number of Christians has gone down, even though the number of humanists didn't really increase much. We need now to make sure that humanism comes into school and this pressure to actually, yes, say, yeah, the human mind has the capacity to answer all the questions. And we feel this pressure to deny things like original sin and so on. And with all of these gods, there are value systems. In our culture, there is a pressure on us to absorb the values of the world around us to absorb the ethics of secular liberalism. Woe to us if today we will speak up and say, no, this is what I believe is, is true for marriage, and this is how I believe that a couple will function best, and this is the best context to raise up children. Woe to us if we were to say that that is a better pattern than something else. There is this pressure upon us to conform. We feel silenced and people are cancelled if they speak out against these things. And we can feel nervous. It's a good question to ask yourself sometimes. Are there things that I might have spoken of quite comfortably 15 years ago or 20 years ago? I know it's biblical, but I feel nervous about saying these things now. And I censor myself you know, to speak about hell, to speak about judgment, to speak about God of wrath. These things don't fit the, the, the value system of our culture. And so there isn't a law of the land yet in Wales or the United Kingdom 
uh, that oppresses Christians. And yet you can see the pressures that are upon us to start to silence ourselves, to start to adapt our teaching, to start to self-censor. And within the Christian church, you're hearing voices going against that which is clear in God's word. You need to be progressive. You need to get up, catch with the program. You need to adapt. You need to come and acknowledge that we're living in a different age. And all of these pressures, all of the time, what will we do? Will we remain faithful to God's word? Will we study it honestly, with transparency, asking him to guide us to a clear understanding? And then when we know what the word says, will we cling to that? Or will we listen to the pressures around us and conform to the world? Will we listen to the word or listen to the world? Will we listen to the flesh or will we listen to the Holy Spirit? Will we conform? Will we compromise? And so even though our context is very, very different to Nebuchadnezzar's and to Sadrach, Misak and Abednego, there are parallels. There are gods that want to take hold of your heart. There are forces out there that want to drive you away from the true and living God. There are pressures to belittle the name of the Lord Jesus, to worship something else, to adapt your values, to change your ethics. It's always been there. But we can see very clearly the culture in which we are living. The question is, how would these men respond? It's very encouraging, actually, isn't it, to read of the response of these men. How did they respond? Well, verse 12, we are told that Shadrach and Misak and Abednego do not pay attention to the law of the land. These astrologers, these spies have given a report. And notice how Nebuchadnezzar changes. He cannot believe it. He is the king. He is the one who is in power. And to begin with, he's filled with incredulity. Is it true that they will not listen? Is it true that they will not bow down? Are they confident enough, bold enough to go against my wishes? And then we see that it all ratchets up. And they come before him and they say that the Lord will deliver them. Verse 17 is perhaps the great verse in this chapter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us. But even if he does not, and even if we face the blazing furnace, we will not bow down and worship the image or the gods. Even if you destroy us, even if you destroy the body, we will not give in. We will continue to worship the true and living God and we will listen to him and we will praise him and we will acknowledge his glory alone and we will obey and follow him. And so that is tremendously comforting, isn't it? Because I guess we're living in a day where we are perhaps sometimes finding ourselves just speculating what will the situation be like in 10 years' time? What will it be like for our children, for our grandchildren? 
And there are times when we pray about these things in our prayer meetings and we try to think, well, here is a comfort and there are comforts that we know of in this current day and age of believers able to stand firm. You might be worried, would I be able to stand? What if I were in the school or in college? What if my son or daughter were to go to a job interview? Uh, and they had to say, what do they believe about these things? Do I believe that they would stand firm? Do I believe that I could stand firm? Is the Lord able to give courage and strength? Yes. <laughs> He's able to give such courage. How were these people able to stand then? So this is what really I want to consider this evening. as to help us to know, well, how were they able to stand in the face of pressures to bow down to other gods, to take on the values of another culture, to abandon the scriptures, not to listen to God. How were they able to stand firm? Well, I think there are four things here. The first thing is that they were faithful in the little things. So in chapter one, after arriving in Babylon, they are exiled uh, as young people exiled from Jerusalem to Babylon. And then they have to consider, well, what sorts of things should we compromise? When should we accommodate the culture around us? And they say, yes, we're willing to change our names. We're willing to take on Babylonian Persian names, but we will not eat or drink. What do you eat and drink? There will be this line that is drawn. And they were faithful in those things. Where perhaps no one else quite literally would have noticed. No one else would have batted an eyelid. There was no law uh, that would have led to their persecution. But they were faithful in little things. We're willing to have our names changed. But we will not defile ourselves by eating and drinking that uh, which is not lawful. And so they are faithful in the little things. They learnt the way of righteousness. They learnt the way of obedience. Don Carson uh, says that a big fall comes as a result of a thousand small wrong decisions. That when you hear of someone falling publicly... That hasn't come out of the blue. That leading up to that, there has been a thousand decisions that that person has made to go to this place, to speak to this person, to respond in this way. A thousand wrong decisions, unwise, foolish, that leads them to a great fall. Well, here we see the reverse, <laughs> uh, that they do a thousand correct decisions by the grace of God, uh, that they are faithful in these small matters, really, so that when the crunch came, when the true test came, when actually it was truly a matter of life or death, they're able to stand. You hear of people like Tim Peake, who is the astronaut, and uh, he went up to the International Space Station a few years ago. He says that he spent thousands of hours in the simulator. 
you imagine then going to that space station and going on a space walk and there all you've got really is your spacesuit. It must be a terrifying prospect, really. I think of how vulnerable he would be. Well, he knew what to do and he did not freeze in that situation. He wasn't crushed by fear because he'd learnt. He had trained. He knew what to do when under pressure. He knew how to think properly. He knew what to do when things went wrong. If there was a slight error, he knew how to adjust and to adapt things. So he was not caught off guard. And we need to be trained in the way of righteousness. In the little things. The things that no one else will see. The way you treat money. The way you speak to your wife at home. The way that you are with your children when you are tired. That little temptation in work perhaps. Just to a little white lie. Are we faithful in those little things? The things that might not get you the sack. The things that other people might not necessarily pick up on. But you know that the Lord sees. Are you faithful in the little things in life? And you know them. (laughs) You know the situations. I could go through the different ages and different backgrounds and different temptations that we face. But you know those situations. Am I faithful in little things? These men, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, like their great friend Daniel, had learned to be faithful in the small things so that when the challenge came, they could stand firm. The second thing is that they learned to pray for everything. And in this, they learned from Daniel's great example. The decree comes from Nebuchadnezzar that Daniel must interpret this dream. And everyone uh, who's been asked before has come up with an interpretation that is not suitable. Uh, and Nebuchadnezzar does not like that interpretation. And they've been killed, summarily executed in front of him. And so the pressure on Daniel is profound. He needs to come up now with an answer that is from the Lord, that is truthful, and that will be acceptable to Nebuchadnezzar. So what does he do? Well, he phones, he phones, he calls uh, his, his friends, verses 17 and 18. He calls them to his home. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And he pleads for them to plead for mercy from God. Let us pray. Let us come before the Lord and ask for mercy. Nebuchadnezzar needs an interpretation He knows that he'd been given the gift of interpretation, but here in this situation, he knows that he needs the Lord's help. And so their response instinctively, by the grace of God, is to pray. And so what would they have done in chapter 3? Well, we're not told, but it's pretty sure that they would have prayed together as three friends, that they would have brought this matter to the Lord If they prayed regarding the interpretation of the dream, I'm sure they would have prayed about this greater matter. What shall we do regarding this image? They were people of prayer. They knew that they were weak. They knew that they were liable to fall. They knew that they were liable to make wrong decisions. 
Do we follow the example of Daniel? Do we follow the example of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Are we truly people of prayer? At the beginning of 2023, let us commit to prayer. It is wonderful to think that the Lord protects us. There are times when we know that we haven't prayed. The Lord is gracious. But the normal pattern is that he wants us to come before him and to ask for strength. A good friend of mine, Clyde Briggs, he might have preached here. Uh, he was a teacher. Uh, and every morning, uh, he would go into his lab. He was a chemi chemistry teacher. And he would go down on his knees. And he would pray for himself and for the children. Praying for the protection of the Lord. Knowing that he could so easily lose his temper. He could so easily say something or do something. And so he would pray each day aware of his weakness. Do we have that attitude? These men were able to stand firm because they were people of prayer. As a church, as individuals, as families, let us pray. The third thing is that they had faith. I've referred to verse 17 already. This truly must have stumped Nebuchadnezzar. Even if the Lord does not deliver us, we will not serve your gods. Even if we have to go into the fire, even if we have to be dropped there into the blazing furnace, we will not give up. We will not compromise. How were they able to do this? Because they had a greater hope. The beginning of verse 17 would be what you would call a prosperity gospel. A God who can deliver us from all sorts of problems. Now, if it was verse 17, well, God can rescue us from problems when there's ill health, when there's suffering. God can deliver us. He can remove all problems. That's prosperity gospel, essentially. A health and wealth gospel. A God who always gives us health, who always gives us wealth, who always delivers us from our problems. But what we have in the second half of verse 17 is something more profound. God doesn't always protect us from the fire. There are times when we have to go into the fire. My father died when I was six years old, when he was 43. The church prayed, the family prayed. You will hear people say, well, if there is suffering, it must be because of sin or a lack of faith. That is utterly unbiblical, evil teaching. We see here that there is an acknowledgement that there are times when the Lord does not deliver us physically. But here is the thing. Even if we have to go into that fire, we still will serve you and not the gods. We will not serve you, Nebuchadnezzar. They had faith that even if they were to die in that fire, they would see their Redeemer. That out of the flesh, they would see him face to face. And so, we know the end of the story. But they didn't know the end of the story. Their faith was not in being delivered. Their faith was not in a miracle. Their faith was, even if we should perish in the blazing furnace, we will still endure it. Because we know that those who believe shall not die. They shall live forever. 
And this can be applied in all sorts of ways, can it? We don't know what 2023 will hold. We don't know if some of us might be called to the doctor's room in the coming year and you might hear devastating news. We can know that even if we hear the most difficult item of news, even if we hear those words that will shake us to the core, you can say, I will still worship God because I will see the Son face to face forever. I will not give up the Lord. I will not worship the world. I will not compromise. I will not abandon my faith. I will not be shaken and I will not be troubled because I know that I will see Jesus and I will be with him. And this is how these men ultimately were able to stand because they knew that well, Nebuchadnezzar had the power to destroy the body, but they would live forever with him. Do we have this hope? Do we have this confidence, this assurance? Let us pray for one another uh, that even if we were to receive the worst, most imaginable news, that we would know that the Lord will protect us and that we will see him one day. And the final thing is God's presence. Now, we know the end of the story, <laughs> uh, but they didn't know, did they? Uh, as they went into that blazing furnace, having prayed, having learned to be faithful in the small things, having faith that God will deliver them ultimately, they go into that blazing furnace. No idea what would happen next. Now we know at the end of the story, we know what happens. That Nebuchadnezzar looks into that blazing furnace and he sees a fourth person. And the fourth person has the appearance of the son of the gods. Stuart Olliot famously said about this passage, that their deliverance was not from the fire, but their deliverance was in the fire. That in that fire, in the blazing furnace, the Lord Jesus is with him. An Old Testament appearance, what we call a Christophany, that Christ, a pre-incarnate appearance of the Son of God, there in the fire with him, so that they were not harmed. And they came out miraculously, and even their hair was not singed. Now, we might have to go through the fire we might have to go through a blazing furnace. We might not literally have the physical presence of Jesus. But we can know that by his spirit, he is with us. That he is always with us. Whatever we might face. Whatever we might go through. Personally, as a family, as a church, as a body of churches. Whatever we might face we can know that the, the Son of God is with us by His Spirit. And actually, I think it's even more profound than what we have here because the Holy Spirit dwells in our souls. He's not just alongside us, but His Spirit, if you've trusted in the Lord Jesus, lives and dwells within you, within your soul. And so you can know peace and comfort and joy and assurance. And we can share testimonies and you can read open doors and 
but our Barnabas fund. And you can see these testimonies. And you can read of people suffering and knowing that the Lord was with them throughout it all. So they were able to stand by the grace of God, by His mercy, because they had been trained in the way of righteousness. They were faithful little things. They prayed together, knowing that they were weak. They had faith that ultimately, even if they should suffer, they will be with Jesus forever and ever. And Jesus was with them there in the blazing furnace. Let's pray that we might have such a vision. And the Lord used that. Now, if these three men had succumbed, if they had compromised, what would have happened? They might have continued to have a role. We don't know. But we know exactly what happened because they stood firm. That Nebuchadnezzar did repent. And he did declare that the God of Israel is a true and living God. He wasn't quite there yet. He still showed a little bit of lack of faith and lack of uh, fruit in that he still declared that those now who were previously worshipping the gods of Babylon should be uh, killed. He's not quite there yet. He's not showing the grace of God yet. And yet it's apparent that there is repentance, that there is this change now in Nebuchadnezzar. If the men had not stood firm, if the power of God had not been seen, would Nebuchadnezzar have repented? Would he have been changed? We were chatting about David Job. Uh, David Job has retired from uh, pastorate in Bangor. Uh, he shared a story with a group of us uh, a few years ago uh, that as a student, he was relentlessly mocked and challenged. There's a group of Christians that they met every uh, week in the Christian Union and uh, they would come and people would stand outside and they would laugh at them and they would shock and uh, shout and heckle at them. And this continued. 30 years later, David had a phone call uh, from a good friend. Uh, I remember in our student days, I used to mock you and I used to berate you. Uh, and I was there outside the Christian Union laughing. My life has fallen apart. My, life, my wife has left me. Uh, I've been made redundant. My children have uh, chosen to take my wife's side, and I'm on my own. And in all of those years, you're the only one, and the group of Christians there are the only ones who've shown integrity and a consistency of life. There was something about you, even though I mocked you, I noticed there was something different. And so he was now phoning David for help. We're not sure what the end of the story was, uh, but he phoned David, knowing that in all of those years, he'd never met people with integrity and faith and this rock in their lives. He had noticed. When we stand firm, when we live lives of integrity and godliness, when we stick to the truth, and we're not people who are swayed back and forth, but we show purity by the grace of God and show love and the fruit of the Spirit, people notice. They might question, they might mock, they might be hostile, they might laugh, but they notice. And the Lord can use that. 
Perhaps you have a family member or a friend in school or college or in work and they mock you. Remember that when you stand firm, the Lord can use that. When you are faithful to him, the Lord is at work. And so let us pray uh, for our situations. Let us turn to the Lord in prayer now. Our God and Father, I pray for one another. I pray for my brothers and sisters here. I pray for my brothers and sisters further afield, uh, in our land, in other countries. Father, we are aware that we're living in days where there are gods around us. Uh, Father, we see the temptation to turn away from you, uh, to absorb other things, and our hearts are captured by all sorts of worldly things. And also we see the temptation to compromise, uh, to adapt, to shape our understanding of the word according to what the culture says. This pressure to conform to the world, not to be conformed by the word. And Father, I pray that you'd help us. Give us wisdom in all of these things. Help us to continue to pray for these people. Ultimately, those who persecute are to be loved. We know that they are sheep without their shepherd. And I pray for your protection. Help us to be people of prayer. Help us to support one another. Give us faith that to be with you ultimately is to know that we will be with Jesus for all eternity. And Father, I pray for those, for these things might be truly pertinent. Those who might be going through suffering, those who might be troubled even today, that they will know that you are with them and that you uh, will give them your presence and your comfort. And so I pray for one another then, as your people, uh, that we would walk with you each day and that we would know you drawing near to us for our comfort and your glory. Amen.